Welcome back to the cycle, guys. I have the one, the only, the impressive Heather Cox Richardson back on the pod today. And why is she back on the pod? Because she has a book that is a must read. You need to get right now onto Amazon, your local bookstore, whatever it is that you buy your books from, and pick up this book. It's called Democracy Awakening notes on the state of America. And if you're unfamiliar, which I don't know how you could be unless you live in some kind of hole of Heather uh, Heather's work, then you know she has probably one of the most successful, especially coming from the academic world, most successful public uh, blogs ever created. And it's called Letters from an American. It's very, very popular. I suggest that you also subscribe to her um, her blog and, and follow what Heather's research is. is she's a very <laughs> uh, interesting historian that has a really good grasp on what's happening and how our historical developments have impacted what's happening in contemporaneous America. So Heather, welcome back to the pod. I am so happy to be here. It's always so much fun to chat with you. Well, thanks. I know I'm, I'm excited about the book, Heather. I was sitting there on the internets one day and it popped up on my thing. And I was like, wait a minute, what's this? And then I pull it up and I look at the, you know, the description of what the book is about. And I'm like, yes, I'm so glad that Heather wrote this book because people do not understand the historical antecedents to what we're going through now is all connected to our history coming, you know, really from the beginning. And I'm gonna let you kind of, um, you know, lay that out, but beginning of the Republic, but you can see these big historical moments and changes where democracy goes from being the province of white men with a lot of money to everybody else and the growing pains that come along with a multipluralistic democracy developing. And so Heather, tell us, what is Democracy Awakening about? You know, I'm actually listening to you describe it and I'm thinking, damn, you know, we got to write my next book together because you're we so much better at this than I am <laughs> articulating it. It was supposed to be a series of essays about the questions that people ask me every day, like how do the parties right. switch sides, you know, yes. uh, but, but what I realized was the more that I talked to people, the more, the thing they asked me all the time was how did we get here? What on earth is going on and how do we get out? So the the overarching argument of the book is that the way dictators get rid of democracies is by using language and history in a really false way. They artificially divide people using a certain kind of language. And once they get into the phase of authoritarianism where we are now, they promise that they can take the country back to some imaginary past where everything was just fine. The trick to that is that it has to be taken back by one dictator who's going to get rid of all the little people in the way who are blocking that beautiful vision with things like the law, you know, and, and the things that are required for society to function. And but was crucial about that, you know, that comes from a lot of different places. There's a historical theory behind that. There's all kinds of stuff. But what was interesting to me about that and what I think is interesting about the book is the first section is how we got here. The second section is how Trump turned a sort of rhetoric into a movement. But I love the third section, which is how you use those same tools to reclaim democracy and with luck to do exactly what you talk about, expand it to include more and more people. And, and one of the things the third section does is it roots that constant expansion in marginalized Americans rather than in, you know, some great, beautiful white past. Yeah, no, I mean, that. I mean, so let's let's not we'll, before we get to that, your favorite part, because that is the last part. Let's go back to the beginning then. And you, you talk a little bit about 
you know, and what I, what I like about this book, too, is that you're a historian. So you wrote a book about what I study, but from a histor an academic historian um, perspective. And, and for folks that don't know, in the academy, we all we can study the same thing like World War Two. But if you're studying it from a political science perspective, you're going to be approaching it kind of differently and doing different um, focuses than maybe a historian would focus on. And so when I was reading through and I was like, oh, this overlaps so much with academic work that I've done in the past. Let's talk a little bit about how the Republican Party finds itself repositioning itself into a state's, into the old Democratic Party, the state's rights, you know, kind of narrative as Reagan and Nixon and those guys sought to realign the South and get all those voters that were mad about the federal government ending segregation. Ending segregation and beginning to advance women's rights as well. Because one of the pieces I don't think we talk enough about is the degree to which misogyny is part of this. Yes. And, you know, and you look at it now and you look at Dobbs versus the Jackson Women's Health uh, Organization. It's like, what is that other than misogyny? Um, come to come home to roost. So one of the things in that original section is it starts in 1937 with what was known as the Conservative Manifesto, because that's the moment when a number of racist Southern Democrats joined together with a number of really pro-business, anti-regulation, anti-tax Republicans to say, we should join forces to push back against the New Deal. Because in 1932, when, when FDR is elected, a lot of people think he's a flash in the pan, he's not going to stick around, but then he gets reelected in 36. And they're like, okay, now we're in real trouble. But the reason I started with that, that most people don't even know about that yes. document because it disappears, is they took on the four pillars of what became known as the liberal consensus, the, um, the New Deal government that regulated business, provided a basic social safety net, promoted infrastructure, and defended civil rights in the states. And the, when the conservatives wrote the, or the people who call themselves conservatives wrote the conservative manifesto, they took those four things on. And listen to this. They say, the government should not regulate business because it interferes with a man's ability to organize his business the way he wants and to accumulate as much money as he can. The government should not be involved in social welfare because that's the province of the churches, and the churches are the ones who should handle that. The government should not be involved in infrastructure because private industry will do that far more efficiently. And finally, it absolutely should not be involved in civil rights because that should be left up to the states. And they actually use language that says we want segregation. Now, if you say those four things, doesn't that sound familiar? It sure does. <laughs> I mean, right? It does. That's it does sound familiar. I mean, it's exactly right. And I can tell you, like, you know, in, in uh, the political science perspective, you know, the New Deal comes along. And until that moment, the president, I mean, the president's presidency has had has expanded its powers and its and its obligations over the course of its 250 years. Right. And, you know, have little moments of flash pan expansion, but there's no expansion that bothered, you know, conservatives, Republicans, because it used to be back in the day, Republicans could be progressive, they could be conservative, whatever. Right. But now they're all conservative. But what bothers them about it? is this new deal is the new deal expansion because as heather just pointed out with these four pillars all four that's what the new deal does it attacks all four of those pillars and completely changes one legal paradigm which heather touched on here the right to make and amass as much wealth as i want right but which which and the jurisprudence of that time is defined as right of contract right um it takes that being the big thing that kind of 
you know, dictates the the precedent and the jurisprudence of the court to this shift, you know, and and the pack the, the the packing, the court packing threat kind of helps push the shift. And that's where you start to see an era of individual freedom jurisprudence emerge. And you also mentioned that. Can you talk a little bit about how we shift over to this individual freedom uh frame in the courts and how that triggers conservatives? Well, so the the that thread that follows through American history really from 1937, and as you say, this attempt to really tear apart that New Deal and return us to a system that was uh, characteristic of the 1920s where people can amass however much money they want. And, you know, there's actually an ideology behind that that's interesting. And I will say, you know, this is, I've never said this before, but here's something for your pod. Ooh, listeners. saucy yeah. guys. We get something so, you never said before. Never said this in public. <laughs> and the thing, the thing about the 1920s and the period up to the 1920s, even the robber barons and all that, is that when people talk about how important it is to be able to amass wealth and all that, they believe it and, and they have no reason to think it's not true. So there are different theories and there are different theories that work better and all that, but um, but but it's real until the rise of the New Deal. But after the New Deal, anybody who makes the argument that it's better for the government to leave all those things alone and simply let people amass wealth, they know they're lying. I mean, that's the thing that really jumps out to me because Hoover, for everything that Hoover did and all that, he believed it. And there was a lot of literature out there that said he was right. And they really didn't quite understand the way the world worked. But once you got the rise of Keynesian economics, you know, in the 1940s and you saw how it worked, Yes. You knew that worked. So when nowadays people come out and they say, oh, it's terrible for our country for us to have social welfare or for us to have yes. fair wages or whatever, or government regulation, they are lying and they yes. know they're lying. So I get really indignant. You know, if you read my stuff, I'm, 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 I, I empathize at least with the arguments, the intellectual arguments that people are making until the 1930s. And then I'm like, stop lying. You guys yeah. are lying. I know you're lying. <laughs> and here's the greatest part of that, Heather, is like twice Republicans have been in control through economic crises, real big ones, not little dot-com bust, but big things, the Great Recession, the pandemic. It, modern Republicans, the ones who have most turned away from the, the truths of the New Deal, right? And what do they do as soon as they were in charge? George, George W. Bush in 08, you know, that is the year the economy started to go on fire. Uh, Trump in, in 2020, what did they do? They turned our economics to fix it, okay? They yeah. went Keynesian 100%, right? Yeah. And then with Biden's success, right? It must piss them off so much, right? Because Biden doubles down Keynesian-ness from 2009, Obama, economic crisis response to, to what Biden did post-pandemic is, is pretty astronomical in terms of the government coming in and shoring up the economy. And what does it do? It creates the hottest economy in the world, right? So it must really kill him. So so I actually think this is why, um, and, and I, I don't actually know when this is going to drop, but I'm watching really closely, of course, Trump going out now and basically, he, you know, not basically, he is declaring him, promising that he will be a dictator. There was, he gave a, a, a video in the middle of the night, the, of the night that we're taping this, that is really off the charts. And of course, they're really manufacturing this crisis on the border. Yeah. And, and I look at that and I think, well, why are they doing it now? I mean, the timing is very weird. 
And I think the answer to that is that you see in popular reactions right now, the recognition that the economy is great. Yes. And if people recognize that that old system that FDR put in place and that presidents until 1981 really doubled down on the idea that you, you make sure people at the bottom have money so no that they doubt. can buy stuff or <laughs> contribute to the economy, that everybody does really well. And if, in fact, people continue to believe that and you keep seeing that in the media, um, their whole system is goes out the window. Their power, their money, everything goes out the window. And so what are they doing there? I think they're doubling down right now on, we're going to have a crisis. This is this terrible moment. And they're literally taking up arms against the United States government. Yeah. Um, I just, the whole, all of it's weird, but the timing is really weird. Oh, no, yes. The timing is not an accident. And I'm one of those people that don't do conspiracies because I study human behavior and understand humans can't even coordinate when they want to, okay? Even within one organization, they cannot coordinate with each other well. So there's yeah. no way that you have the DOJ and the FBI and all these people, and we, no, guys, okay? Yeah. Coordination is extraordinarily hard. It's the reason we have government, in fact, is because human coordination is so damn hard, right? So when you say it's not an accident, I'm gonna agree with you, and I'm gonna tell you what I think is happening down in Texas. I mean, I think they've successfully um stalled or, or killed off what would have been historic investment in border security and and in 20 years it's never been possible for them to get that kind of investment without granting amnesty and Schumer gave them that said look it's such a bad crisis let's just deal with this and don't we won't even make you vote on dreamers right <laughs> and still they can't do it and the reason I think I think Greg Abbott I think they're aware that they have a problem I think they they didn't count on Trump. So Hitler was was uh, you know I'm going to get in trouble. Hitler was smarter than Trump, but Hitler was smarter than Trump. He when he ran in '32, he didn't talk about Jews very much. Okay, he would talk about the economic crisis. He talked about other things, and you know blah 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 blah. blah. But he at least tried to appear somewhat sane and tried to tell people he was peaceful. There was none of be no wars, da-da-da-da-da. Trump doesn't do that, right? I mean, he's gone full out. I'm going to run. I'm going to be a dictator. I'm going to, you know, whatever, right? And it's and the Republican Party, between that problem of Trump putting it into the news cycle and our strategy of making it the theme, right? So, like, the Democrats' strategy is to make democracy, make sure people know democracy is on the ballot because, unfortunately, most people are not our listeners or you know, people who follow us. They are people that don't read any news. They have imagistic impressions of what's happening in the government. They don't know Republicans control the House and that's why we can't have border security. They just know we can't have border security. And I think what they want to do is create a crisis. And I think that they had uh, a chance. They were real close to do that when the when the shutdown stuff happened right before um, they tossed Kevin McCarthy. And I think that, you know, now they're looking at the border as an opportunity because People won't vote for fascism if they're feeling good, okay? They won't do it. So in the right. Republican world, it's all about making sure people don't feel good. And that's why it's weird because I'll be like walking through Portland and there's flowers and bees and, you know, whatever. Everyone's outside eating and it's, you know, and like yet the the impression of Portland on Fox News is that it's on fire and there's druggies everywhere. and You can't walk without getting a needle stuck in you, right? So like they are pounding crisis 24 hours a day into 30, 35 percent of the electorate. Partisanship takes care of that other 45, you know, other 10 percent of that and gives them a coalition. And these folks, they are they think that they're they're being told anyway that it's an invasion. 
that these folks are coming in and they're going to set up gangs and overrun the cities and with crime and whatever, right? Like it's really about provoking, I think, a response from the Biden administration. And I think that they're hoping it with this border stuff that, that Abbott's been doing. I think that they're hoping that they'll force Biden to do something like nat nationalize the National Guard, because what they need more than anything is some kind of real argument. And the DOJ politicization stuff failed because the media didn't play ball with them. They need some argument that makes us look undemocratic. Right. And if they can get Biden to step in and have to take over Texas's National Guard, then they can run with their dictator stuff and, and freak them out. So I think that I think there is a lot of strategy going on in this. I think there is too. I, and it's just, again, one of the things you said really jumps out is as you're trying to game this out. And by the way, I am happy to talk about history, but it's just, we're making it every day, yes, right? We're living it. Yeah. Um, is that, you know, Hitler had the economic argument he could make. And the and Trump had an economic argument he could make in 2016 because that trickle down economy or the trickle trickle down economics from the Republicans after eight, uh, 1981 had in fact hollowed out the middle class. It had really screwed over a lot of people. And and so was there there was the economic argument, and then there was also the rhetorical argument that went along with it. That the reason this was hollowed out is because of those black people and brown people and women all who are taking tax dollars in some or another undeserved program. Right. And, you know, so Trump had both of those things going on. And certainly Trump and the Republicans have have thrown all their eggs into it's those nasty black people, brown people, women who want abortions, all that. But the economy is really good. Yeah. So, so it's going to be, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that that they they recognize that with such a good economy, they have to manufacture something else. And um and. You know, I I spent the morning actually trying to game out how I thought it was going to go and trying to compare it to the 1850s because the the elite Southern enslavers do something not at all dissimilar, although they too had the advantage of having a, a the North had a, bad, a pretty bad economy after 1857. Briefly, comes back actually during the war in 1861, but but they do something very similar. They need to manufacture a crisis because they know the vast majority of Americans think they're weenies and they don't want to. Uh, to have them run the the country, right, right. So what's what do they do to manufacture their crisis? Just curious. Well, so first of all, the um, the the whole idea of secession may, is possible because it happens so quickly. Because South yes. Carolina is the only state where the legislature chooses the electors. So the South Carolina legislature is actually sitting when they discover that Lincoln has been elected. And they instantly, before he's taken office, before he's done anything, they instantly take the state out of the union. And then a number of deep Southern states follow because it's Christmas time and everybody's drinking and, you know, impressing the ladies. And, oh, we're right. going to take on, you know, my my husband would now call them keyboard warriors, although they didn't have keyboards in those days. Exactly. And, and they so they form, <laughs> they, that's yeah. right. They form this, um, the idea of having their own nation, but then nothing happens, you know, and then planting season comes and people start looking at each other and being, eh, maybe we drank a little much. Why don't we see what Lincoln's really going to do? Because remember, he had said, I'm not going to interfere with enslavement in yes, the States. Exactly. You can't spread it to the West. And, um, and so 
There are four federal installations still operative in the South. Um, there are actually more that, that the Southerners don't mind having operating. Um, but uh, when when Lincoln goes to resupply one of them, they fire on it, and that's Fort Sumter. And of course, once they have fired on the federal government, it's a yeah. whole different kettle of fish. So <laughs> I'm watching what's happening in the in the in Texas and thinking, really, is is Abbott manufacturing a situation where state troops fire on the federal government because here's a newsflash the federal government has 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 a little bit of ammunition itself um and the other trick about them then versus now is that of course the southern confederates wanted to take their states and create their own nation in this case the radical republicans want to take over the entire country of the united states and put themselves in charge of it a very small minority in charge of it and put forward programs like an, an anti-abortion ban across the country 69 percent of americans want roe reinstated you know they want to put in place all of these extraordinary measures that you know, are we going to put up with that? I don't think so. Yeah, I have no idea. But I, I mean, I, I've always understood that like Lincoln gets elected. He runs. He doesn't run, as, as Heather just pointed out. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to abolish slavery if I win the presidency at day one. <laughs> okay? right. None of that. Dude. In fact, he says, look, let's just not expand it west, which is, you know, digging back into the Missouri Compromise. And, you know, that's it. And and yet, and I, so I knew like the Southern states moved first on succession for no reason, but I didn't realize it was that night in the South Carolina legislature. And the reason I'm mentioning that, folks, is because we're having a conversation now, you know, should the plain language of the 14th Amendment, which clearly says people who engaged or aided insurrection, not people who've been proven in court to have done so, people who have been observed to do so, cannot run for federal office. And the reason is, is because once upon a time in that Southern elector election cycles, right before that big decision to succeed, what was happening was politicians were getting elected on a platform of, you know, protecting slavery at all costs. And so, you know, if we elect people who are, who are committed to ending democracy and they're telling us so, and they've already tried to end it once, some of them violating their federal oaths to do so, you know, then we should probably believe them. They're, these, they will have the power in the Texas state legislature, in the South Carolina legislature, in the Florida legislature to do whatever they want. And, and as Heather has pointed out, what the Civil War starts as a response, right? And the federal government was obligated to keep the country together. Right? I mean, that's what the war initially is about. The South wants to succeed over slavery. And Lincoln's like, we got to keep the union together, right? And uh, I think that we're really in a very, very dangerous place because I think Republicans recognize that. Well, well, just two things. One, I'm not sure it happens the same day. It happens within days because okay. um, they talk about it some. But the other piece that I think is really important now, as it was then, is that when we talk about the state legislatures being willing to support this this extremism in the Confederacy, uh, of course, the 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 secession was never put to a popular vote. Right. And the people who could elect members of the legislature were a very small part of the population. And the reason I say that and emphasize that now is because I think if you look at 
Florida and um, Texas and and other Republican dominated states. I hate to call them red states because I think they're voter suppression states. You know, you look at those states, they, they would not be, you know, they, the, the people in charge of those states would not be taking away drop boxes and would not be suppressing the vote and would not be doing all the things they're trying to do to make sure that Democrats can't vote unless they were afraid they would not win the popular vote. And so right. you think about what's going on there now. If in fact people had a free and fair vote, they would not be voting for for Greg Abbott or or Ron DeSantis. And the same was true in the in the in 1860. If you had let women and African Americans and poor white men vote in the American South, hell, if you just let poor white men vote because they'd all been forced off their lands in the 1850s with this land boom that had given everything to the elite Southern enslavers. They wouldn't have seceded. They knew perfectly well they were the ones who were going to be on the front lines. But of no, course, no. They, didn't, they didn't have the right to vote. So it's not just about, hey, we have a different vision. A lot of it is it's a minority trying to impose its will on the majority, which is obviously anti-democratic. Yeah, by its very nature, right? I mean, our framers wanted checks and balances. What they wanted was a majority that was incapable of completely rolling over a minority. They never intended a system in which the minority has equal or even in many cases, of course, in the Senate, this is definitely true, more power than the majority, right? We're in such a crazy place. We're in such a crazy place. Yeah, and your book closes. Like, let's go, let's go to the end of your book. Because I want I want people to feel hopeful. My own book coming out next month, I should shamelessly plug it, hit them where it hurts, how to save democracy by beating Republicans at their own game. And it talks about electioneering strategy and it explains to us, to people like us, how how low civic knowledge and political knowledge is in our in our electorate. Okay, this assumption that everyone knows and why aren't they pissed off? Well, no, because everyone doesn't know. And that's why they're not pissed off. They don't watch the news. They don't pay attention. And when they do watch the news. It's something like Good Morning America, okay? It's not hard MSNBC, CNN news, right? (laughs) It's entertainment news. So we have a situation where people don't know a lot. And because of that, Republicans have been able to manipulate rhetoric, to manipulate behavior through emotion. Let's talk a little bit. And you you talk about how Democrats can do the same thing or should do the same thing. So, you know, and that's obviously what I'm arguing as well in a different context. So let's talk a little bit about that. What are you arguing at the end of the book about our rhetoric and what we can do? Well, one of the arguments in the book is that the radical right managed managed to get the kind of power it does by telling a very simple story of the little guy who's being crushed by the empire. And of course, that's a mythical story that shows up all over Western literature and probably other literatures I don't know as well. But you can think of it as things like Star Wars, for example, you know, Luke Skywalker, who takes on the empire without an education, just by having the force, right? Something that flows through him. So it's a very compelling story, but there is a much more compelling story that is much more deeply rooted in our actual history. And that is people coming together to help each other out, to create a fair and just system in which we are all equal before the law and we all have a right to a say in our government. And simply including people in that story, I think includes far more people And it's a much more empowering story. And it's a story that we all need to say, hey, we have agency, we can affect the future. And, you know, when I say that that's that that's the story we should tell and you might say, oh, she's just, you know, nuts. This is this is this (laughs) other one is so deeply ingrained. Think about uh, the fact that. 
Herbert Hoover is elected by a landslide in 1928 with the idea of the little guy against the empire, right? We're going right. to have individualism and all that. And by 1932, just four years later, the entire thing is turned on a dime. And from 1930 into the into World War II in the 1940s, everything was about buddy movies and community and working together. And people stopped flying the Confederate flag in that period. It comes back again after Brown versus Board of Education. But there is this period when, you know, you stuck your your uh, your Confederate battle flag under the towels in the in the in the linen closet because you were part of this larger movement that was a community building society, making it more prosperous, making sure more people had better things like, like post offices and schools and roads and airports and, you know, murals on the walls and swimming pools. And, you know, there was this real belief that we could all do things together. And it's not the only time that's happened, but when we act that way as a country, everybody does better. Race relations get better. Gender relations get better. Our foreign policy gets better. It's a winning strategy. And that's the 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 idea that I would like to bring back. And again, when we did it in the 1930s, it was very deliberate. I mean, there were um, people like uh, Frank Sinatra did, you know, the the, sh the famous short in our house and all about how we all have to stop discriminating based on religion. And, you know, Superman tells high school students that, you know, if they hear anybody discriminating, that's un-American and tell them so. And, you know, we can do this, but it means redefining and grabbing hold of that definition of who we really are and who we want to be. And you know what else it really requires? I talk a little bit about, you know, I, I mean, you could say like the book is rough on voters, right? Because it's, it's telling them, it's showing people like, look, Roe v. Wade was only the 10th most important story in the 20, uh, in 2022. Okay. Because Amber and Johnny Depp's trial was more important than Roe review. <laughs> like that's got more salience and more clicks, right? More looks than Roe repeal did, which was itself also a, a titanic political moment, okay? Because like stuff like, you know, a Muslim ban or whatever, that's not going to do that, right? It was a, it, so, so with Roe repeal and the low interest in the electorate, you might think I, I'm insulting voters, but what I'm actually trying to lay out is that we are culturing Americans that way. Like the reason why America, like you'll meet people who are like, oh, I skipped my Peloton workout and I feel so bad, but they don't feel bad about voting, not voting. In fact, they feel proud. Like, if, you know, I, I have to tell people what I do, strangers often, you know, and I try to dress it down <laughs> and and they'll say, oh, politics. Yuck. Yeah. I don't do any of that. And they, and the, and the thing is, is like, they're not embarrassed, right? They're not like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm shirking my civic duties, and I know I should. And but no, they're they're actually asserting a moral superiority to me because they are not in the trenches in the mud, right? So, like we cult, we we have such a weak political culture developed in this country that we actually teach people that talking about politics is bad. Okay, so to, to full circle around. Like what you're suggesting is good and it's right. And, and you know, you need top level, like people who are going to be able to influence other people's thoughts doing it, like Frank Sinatra. But at the end of the day, what we need is each person individually to carry the mantle of democracy, to be willing to talk about civics and politics with strangers, neighbors, coworkers and friends. To, we have to change this idea that you, that you don't talk about politics and have in polite conversation because 
what we have done is we've created about 50% of American adults who don't even, they barely know who the president is. Okay. And that's great in a country that's functioning really well. I used to tell my students about this problem 10 years ago when I first started teaching. And then I would tell them, but don't worry, guys. The reason is that we can ignore our government is because it functions so damn well. You can ignore it. Okay. You cannot ignore the government in Iran. You cannot ignore the government in Brazil. Okay, but you can ignore the government in America other than paying your taxes or whatever that is, parking fee, and, and, and live every year without ever noticing it. At least you could until recently. And that has changed. And, and one of the reasons we're in this position is because of that kind of behavior. And certainly, Heather, I'm excited because I think you'll be into this too. If we can get through the wildfire that we're in, which is this 24 cycle, keep the fascists from controlling the executive branch, which is crucial to the survival of the future of our democracy. The thing that we need to do is fix that problem. And it's and it starts with children and it starts with socialization in families. I do a lot of lecturing and I'll say to everyone and I always know this joke's going to come off fine. I always tell people, you know what the number one, how many of you guys had parents that voted? And everyone in the audience will raise their hand. And I know it's going to be, uh, if, if it's 99 out of 100, that's weak, okay? <laughs> I know it's going to be 100 out of 100. And then I tell them, you know what, why you're in here in this room right now is because your parents voted. And that socialization does not happen for many, many, many people. So we need to find a way to interfere in that process and make sure parents who are not coming into parenting, having been socialized already into voting, get socialized and then socialize their children. And I think like that's a generational thing, right? We're sort of not talking about something that will make changes in five years. We're talking about something that will make changes for the next 50. But I do think that it's a critical project. And and I, and I figured you'd be interested in hearing about it. <laughs> I absolutely think so. And I also think that one of the things that has jumped out to me in the last several months, you know, I get letters all the time. What can we do to make the mainstream media fairly present what's happening rather than just a horse race? And I, I, you know, used to say, well, write, complain, do all that. And I've started to say, do it yourself. You know, that people listen to their friends more than they listen yes. to anybody else. And at this point, yes, the major newspapers have a very long reach. But at this point, you know, I think if you're trying to get actual facts out in front of people, you kind of have to do an end run. And social media enables us to do that. You know, I was reading Arnold Schwarzenegger's new book. And um, in it, he said something uh, that really hit me. And that said, he was talking about watching the people attacking the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And he said, you know, he has, talks about how he reacted to that. And he said, you know, I figured that if social media had could radicalize them, if people had been able to reach them and radicalize them through social media, I could reach them as well. And that to me, you know, because I do so much on social media, you and I both do, but, you know, in a way, there are many reasons we've done it and, and all that. But then I thought, we can do that. That's exactly right. The trick is that we're trying to, you know, reach people to give them actual facts and to empower them rather than to hide the truth from them and turn them into serfs. And that I think, I think people will gravitate. My, my brother always says people gravitate toward, people are heliotropic. They gra gravitate toward the sun. It just depends what kind of a sun you're showing them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, for my, for me, it's about, 
getting us to understand like facts won't win, like won't, won't convince somebody. Right. But at the end of the day, it's about narrative setting and you need sloganeering to do the good narrative setting, like make America great or build the wall or whatever. Right. So it by its nature has to be simplistic, but the book closes with a, with a segment that's called everyone's an influencer. Like if, uh, so Heather has a huge audience. I have an audience. We are influencing a big audience, but if you have 100 people, and you're putting out memes that are basically free digital direct mail. So in the book, I talk about how much we've neglected the power of what the internet could do to us for us to reach people individually with political messaging. Because, you know, we think of memes as stupid things that happen on Twitter, but actually politicians pay a lot of money, political campaigns to mail to a house. What is the equivalent of a meme if you do it well, right? And, you know, if you only have 100 people on your follower count and you're throwing up a message like your body, his choice, right, for Republicans, you are you're you're affecting how they see the world. And so getting people to understand that the, there's a power in our micro communications and we're not utilizing that. And I love how you are also telling your audience the same thing. You are the change you want. You you have to be that change and you can actually influence people better than I can because you know them. It's an intimate network, right, that you interact with and, and that it really matters that that level of individual activism. Plus, we're decent people. I mean, that's the <laughs> other thing. I mean, I, I'm actually sort of not joking. It is a community yeah, yeah. and it's a community across this country now and across the world, too. And you think of, so, you know, every time I, I listen to one of the, the spokespeople for the extremists or listen to some of the people they're interviewing, I'm thinking, I don't I don't want you in my house. I don't yes. want certainly don't want you making laws for me. But, you know, you think of some of the people who have come out in support of the Constitution, even though you don't share their political values. Would I have Liz Cheney over for dinner? I would jump at the chance to have Liz Me Cheney too. over for dinner because yep. she seems like she's a decent human being. And yes. that's what politics used to be is yeah. you could disagree about policies, but you didn't take, you know, the fifth grade bully and put him in the White House. That was yeah. just, you know, we had to deal with the fifth grade bully, but we didn't deal with him by giving him power. And that I think actually matters, you know, to, to yeah. empower the good voices in our community rather than the bullies. Yeah. And all, and bullying sells, you know, so like I, if I wanted to be a, a millionaire right now, I would do far left commentary. It would be all young Turks, <laughs> blah, blah, anger and fear, anger and fear. And I would have a million followers by now easily, dude. And I'd be living like a king. You know, if you're selling rationality and solutions, it doesn't it doesn't sell as easily. But that doesn't mean you don't still have to try to sell it. Right. And do that hard, heavy lifting. But, you know, I want people to leave, I think this conversation, but the both of our books, feeling empowered to realize, okay, there is a coalition of the decent, okay? The Biden team is going to make it clear what they're running on, that this is not about gas prices and inflation and tax policy. This is about whether we're going to be a democracy or a dictatorship and what that means for you individually in terms of loss of freedom and rights, right? And um, at the end of the day, I think it's really important that we amass as many decent people together as we possibly can to meet this moment that all of our ancestors have risen and met, or we wouldn't be standing here today having this conversation, right? Like they, they, they stopped the succession, won the Civil War, they got through the Great Depression, right? If, if our leaders can do this, they can revolt against the British monarchy, then damn it, 
we can vote. That's all we have to do is vote to save democracy. So, so I just have to say, you said, you know, you would you would be uh, rich and famous and all that if you had gone with the, the extremism thing. And I totally get what you're saying. But but with our backgrounds, what I love about being on this side of the equation is that we're standing with Abraham Lincoln and Fannie Lou Hamer and, you know, Red Cloud and all the people who expanded our democracy. And at the end of the day, we may not have huge bank accounts, but what we will have is a place in the history books. And, you know, if you want to be immortal, where's a better place to be? I, I'm with you, Heather. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. When I used to teach American government, I used to think, and I'd be on that freedom ride bus or I'd be doing this or that. And that's why I did quit my job in the academy and blew up a career I spent years building so that I could come do strategy for the, you know, work with Democrats on strategy. And, you know, I'm glad to be in the trenches with folks like you. It means so much. It's going to be an incredible year. It's going to be a hard year. I know people are going to get get depressed, but just try to keep uh, your vision on the light. And I think Heather Heather's book is a great way to do that. So pick it up at the store. Again, it's called Democracy Awakening Notes on the State of America. It's a great read, and you can get that right now at any bookstore. It's already out. 